Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. sign of these curious pandemic times that a little hardcover book of real life love stories has been in the top five Australian bestseller list for the past three months. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Who doesn't love a love story? But journalist and writer Trent Dalton's two-month project to sit on a Brisbane street with a fold-up chair and a table and an Olivetti typewriter upon which he writes the love stories of strangers, it struck a chord with a COVID-anxious community. Why are people telling you these things, asks Denise, one of the passers-by. Blame it, the pandemic, Trent tells her. He tells another stranger, Helen, people seem to want to talk a bit more than usual, go a bit deeper, maybe. Maybe, or maybe there was just something so appealing about Trent Dalton's pop-up office come psychiatrist sofa and his mission to discover what is love and what makes us love. People just wanted to be a part of it. If I had been in Brisbane on the corner of Albert and Adelaide streets during those weeks Trent was there, I would have stopped and shared. Who doesn't enjoy talking about someone or something they love? Trent Dalton is a multi-award winning journalist whose special subject is feature writing. In 2018, his first novel, Boy Swallows Universe, stormed up the charts, took home nearly every literary prize in the country and is still selling copies around the globe. Trent's second novel, All Our Shimmering Sky, a very different kind of novel with an epic feel, rewarded his fans and proved to reviewers his immense creativity and storytelling talents. And now his third book, Love Stories, one of Christmas's bestsellers and still going strong, takes us into the non-fiction realm of social observation and memoir. We are honoured and delighted, Trent Dalton, one of the most important contemporary voices in Australian book publishing, is with us today. Hello, Trent. Sorry, that is the most beautiful introduction I think I've ever heard about myself. And you were 
very, very kind. Thank you. I am not um, kind. You deserve all these accolades. And, and Trent, just this morning I received the Nielsen Book Scan poll, which is uh, an organisation, as you probably know, it picks up all of the data, the sales data from indie bookstores around Australia and Love Stories is sitting still at number one. I, are you serious? I, I genuinely didn't know that. Oh, they should be telling you this at your publishing house. These things, I know. You know, I do. I sometimes, there's this thing, anyway, I sometimes think about where it's at and then I go, I can't ask them that. I myself would sound like a douchebag. You know what I mean? So, Corey, you don't know what that means to me. I'm really happy to hear that. Trent, um, look, before we get on to love stories, um, yeah. I, I just want to talk about this extraordinary time that this has been for you in the past couple of years. And I wonder if back in, say, 2017, if I'd asked you to imagine the next five years, would you have thought that you had three best-selling books inside your head and each with their own audience to discover? I'm getting emotional, Corey. Like you're making me um, because I don't stop and slow down and think about that. And then if I go even further back and think about a really kind of often sad kid, you know, like 15-year-old me, I just wish I could go back and tell that kid, you know. And I mean the way you just put it just then and you're so right, you know, like it, it is the greatest me. I get chills because I think about this idea that thing you fear the most, you know, like this thing. I was so terrified for so long. You know, I know that I'm here talking to you because of that book, Boys Falls Universe, you know, and, 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 and I, you know, I have no doubt that's the book I was put on this planet to write. And I'm so proud that I did it. You know what I mean? When I look back in hindsight and there were so many reasons not to. And I just think the universe was sort of telling me, fight that fear. You know, I don't want to get all Oprah on you, but it's like, it really hits home to me now. You know, I wrote that book at 38 and I'm 42 now. And I'm just like, that happened. Like, and, and that, that was me just going, I am going to go ambitious and I'm going to be vulnerable, but strong. You know what I mean? If that's even possible. And then I'm just going to put all this stuff in. And I don't know where it's going to go. And there's just certainly no way that I thought that there'd be like three, you know, that, you know, and that, like, and I remember doing it. I remember saying to my wife, like, look, it'll just be my, my thing. It, it was so indulgent. It was so indulgent to go downstairs into my kid's rumpus room. I did it. Uh, I did Boy Spells Universe between eight and 10 at night. And so indulgent, you know, my kids was probably about 10 and, and eight by then. And you know, right in that thick of that period where you've got to really be, you know, helping out after dinner and all that stuff. And, my angel wife was just like, no, nah, I think you've got to do this. You know, you should go down and just smash that thing out. Very indulgent thing to do. And we didn't know what, you know, and I thought five people might read it, my wife, my three older brothers and my mum. And then it just sort of built and, yeah, I just, and then to do something like Love Stories, you know, which is sort of, it just all fits right is, is where I feel about Love Stories too because that's a product of the 20 years before Boys Fellows Universe where I was doing that, talking to strangers and, so it's bringing both of those worlds in love stories. It really is bringing that. It, it is literary. It's written in a literary way, love stories. So it's bringing my love of literature in with my love of journalism. So that felt right. I will weep for the next five minutes if I start thinking about telling 15-year-old me or let alone 12-year-old, you know, or 8-year-old when mum's in, like, you know, dark places and, and not around us boys because she's sort of dealing with the sort of strange things from her past and, the, and our lives in the 80s. And if you told me at eight, okay, now I'm getting really emotional, you just go, okay, well, you're going to be so happy when you're 42. <laughs> you know, you're going to be so happy. It's, yeah, it's, it's 
it's bizarre and, and, and it's a tribute to holding on and it's a tribute to just absolutely facing the thing that you're most terrified of. All my life I swallowed the story, you know, swallowed it down and never spat it back up, the story of everything that happened to us boys, the Dalton boys in the 80s, you know, and I just... I think it's such a great lesson in that, you know, about sharing stories. It does, and it also brings to the fore, of course, your journalistic talent. And, and just through your professional life, you've proven that you're a great storyteller. So we shouldn't really be surprised that you've swall- you, you followed Boy Swallows Universe with two other bestsellers. But interestingly, I often find with, the, you know, the writers that I have chats with, sometimes their first novel or their second novel, there's a really strong autobiographic yeah. link in there. Because that's the story they feel most familiar with. Yeah. The the experiences are very real, sometimes very raw, and they get it down. And then there's that, that imposter syndrome sometimes creeps in with them or indeed the publishers or the public think, are they a one-trick pony? Is this the, oh, is yeah. it? So um, we were talking about this last night actually in relation to Hannah Kent's third novel. Like you, she has a huge creative brain and an amazing energy and, and you know, her first book is based on her thesis uh, but boy, oh boy, has it unleashed a whole new realm of storytelling. And I feel that way with your work too. You are not a one-trick pony. This is not – it's just not a, a Boy Swallows Universe, Mark Two, Mark Three, Mark Four. And and Love Stories is just such a, a powerful piece of – well, you know, it's non-fiction writing, but I do, I do put the word memoir and autobiography in there quite deliberately oh, yeah. because you just, you, you just exude it because – you were trying to find love and you've found love and but you're still curious like we all are, what is it? Oh, it's so interesting you say that. I mean, it's more personal than Boy Swallows Universe, that book. Love Stories is absolutely more personal and on the bone, to the bone for me than Boy Swallows Universe was in many ways because because I'm sharing how I am right now and, and you know, between you and I and all your wonderful listeners, um, you know, the book comes from a place of losing losing the love or yeah, it comes from a relationship not working, and I'm not talking about my wife or anything. It's 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 something that a relationship very dear to me that wasn't working, and me trying to work out how to make it work, you know. And 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 I could not tell you how treasured that relationship is to me, and thus why how personal that book was for me, you know. So all those letters I write to Joni Mitchell, and Whitney Houston, and I'm I'm looking for avatars. I want to be writing to this person. They're not taking my letters, you know what I mean? And um, and so it's very deep and, and very real, and I think we all have to write from those places. So, uh, you know, I feel so um, honour-bound to just go full-hearted in anything I write. Like I needed I needed to write Boy Swallows Universe to find the key that opened the chest that had all the other stories in it. And I can't even – I just said to my – we were talking in the kitchen here the other day, and I said, I want to write two books this year. I'm just so excited to write stuff. You know what I mean? Like that's how I feel, Corey. Like it's just sort of I feel like they're just in me. I feel like how I felt when I was like 20 and I was just starting out in journalism. How and exciting. And and have you yeah. taken time off from um, from the Oz or uh, are you yeah, freelance? Yeah, or? I'm, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, um, I'm, on, I'm on sort of like this extended long service leave, which is just, you know, really a sort of a nice place to be in. So it's kind of, and I, but I all want to, you know, always, and, and Love Stories was absolutely a product of that too. I always want to massage that sort of, that skill, you know, and, and journalism really is such a great way to get out of this, out of your own head. You know, with all the strange stuff that happened with Boys Follows Universe and then all the headspace that I gave all our Shimmering Skies because of all that second book syndrome stuff, 
it was so wonderful to just stop bloody being me, 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 me all the time and, and make it you, 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 you know, 150 strangers. And, and it was so good for my soul and, um, and reminded me of everything I'm here for, which is to listen. So, you know, I should be listening more to you and I'm just rambling, but it's like, but it's like, I just, I just love that sense of things you learn from just talking to strangers. And, and it was like, I built a career out of that. Like absolutely all my feature writing, that's all I ever did. Just walk into the suburbs gently knock on doors and ask them, ask a stranger if I can sit in their lounge room for four hours as they tell me every last secret in their life, the greatest privilege. What curiosities am I going to uncover today? And it was just such a thrill. It's so addictive that that's such a powerful way to sort of work. And it's, and it's also, uh, it reminds me of something an old, crusty old editor told me when I was, was actually a cadet reporter at The Age and they said, wow. and, you know, let's go back a few centuries, Trent, there was no email or iPhones or texting but he his advice was get out of the office don't do the once over lightly by by do trying to do something on the phone get out and go and have a cup of coffee with your subject and you'll find not just the one story you're looking for you've been assigned you'll find five other stories always true and your and your love stories is an absolute example of that before we get on to the how, how it sort of how you collected them i want to talk about this gift of the olivetti typewriter that was left to you by a lady who had died the mother of a close friend of yours and she had yeah. left you her old olivetti typewriter i'm amazed at your age you actually know what an olivetti typewriter is but <laughs> In the book you say, Trent, at the start of it, you, you're writing a letter to Kath, actually, and you promise her that you'll write something filled with love and depth and truth and frankness, and you say, it wouldn't be cynical or glib, because I can't do cynical or glib anymore. The global market for cynical and glib has been flooded. By saying, I can't do cynical and glib anymore, do you mean that you once did cynical and glib? Or I, I was interested oh, to hear you unpack that's a great that. question. No, no, I did. You know, I tried to be, um, tried to be super witty and super funny, and and uh, and it was just something. It was more a response to social media too, like just just seeing sort of people being um, glib, trying to be sort of super glib, and, and you know, no one. It's not a lot of heart in in writing anymore, and I was just thinking, you know, look, I can't can't be that glib guy with 150 characters and stuff, and. I just thought, you know, what, what I do think I'd probably do better than 150 character piece of glib kind of witticism, I can do a 400 page book of just pure heart and soul. And, but oh man, my first sort of five years as a journo was all that. Just, aren't I a wacky and aren't I a funny guy the way I sort of take the piss out of someone or, or, or worse, Corey, talk about things you learn from feature writing. Someone's, Someone's, I've done this, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of all ashamed of myself. Someone's given you their heart and soul with their story and you've taken the piss out of it. You know, I mean, I did, I've, I've probably done that a couple of times. You know, the, the type of rye, that sort of rye kind of um, wink, wink type feature piece, you know what I mean? I probably did that a few times that readers love, readers love it. Remember I gave Priscilla Presley a hard time once and, I, and, I, and it keeps me up at night. Like, it just keeps me up at night, and I just feel so bad. Like, that's freaking Elvis Presley's wife, and I was like, there was an issue in the interview about we weren't allowed to ask questions about plastic surgery and all this stuff. And anyway, I, I just I was a bit of a smart-ass, you know, and, and I just look back and I go, no, man. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes Trent, you can, just, you can just report it straight because readers, yeah. readers aren't dumb. 
I love oh, it. I love true. a subtle. You know, if it's a shocking. I mean, Lynn Barber used to do that for the Independent in London. She used to. She used to do like they were. They were scathingly wicked because of the things that she noticed. And well, like, like Rich, yeah, like Richard Harris, the interview that she did with him, the late great actor of Camelot, um, who was, I gather, well, her sense of him was that he was um, vain and quite, quite macho, or saw himself as a bit of a macho, anti-female thing. And throughout the interview, he is scratching in between his legs, you know, and playing, and as she said, juggling his marbles, juggling his balls <laughs> through this kind of tracksuit pant thing. He hadn't even really bothered to dress up for her. Now, that's all she needed to say. And the reader just takes home, you know, so many on so many levels. We kind of got a picture of, of the bloke. Oh well, Corey, you just described all the best writing. I mean, you just—that's it. You don't need. You don't need to. You know, you, you just need to notice things, and you need to put those details in there. And I really learned that along the way, and and I and absolutely have put that in everything I write now. Just you don't have to comment. You don't have to put your opinion on what you see. You know, it exists, and it it is perfect. I remember Anthony Hopkins. I interviewed Anthony Hopkins like really early, and I learned I learned a lot about what you were, what you just said. He picked the gunk out of his fingernails. Um, we we're at the Park Hyatt Hotel, and he was picking the gunk from beneath his fingernails and fl- flicking it across the hotel room. And I just put that in the story. It's like I didn't have to comment. I didn't have to then go. He's bored out of his brain by my questions. The reader knows that, you know, and, and very powerful lessons that you learn. And it's a lot funnier when. You're not being a smartass. You're just detailing things and then the person goes, wow. You know what I mean? They, yeah, absolutely. They make the laugh. You're right. The reader is smart enough to, get, to make the laugh. So, so the reader, you also allow the reader to be smart enough here, Trent, in terms of, uh, in terms of modern Australia. For me, your book, uh, and we'll get to the sort of the 150 stories and everything in a minute, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, I'll probably not. I mean, we'll keep going. Yeah, but, um, feature writing, Corey, for the next three Oh, hours, well, well, we so will, we will, will do that yeah, at some sorry, stage. Yeah, yeah. After reading the book, Trent, I, kind of let it settle and, and knowing, of course, that we were having a chat. And so my way of kind of like, okay, what is the foremost feeling that I have? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the response? What's the feeling? And my first feeling was that your collection of stories effortlessly portrays modern Australia in all her guises, in all her diversity, her economic backgrounds, her religious and cultural differences, her colours, her genders, her viewpoints, uh, and it wasn't manufactured. It, I, I never, never did I have a sense. Like I, reading your book, I didn't feel like any of it was manufactured because you were sitting on the street and these yeah. people came up to you and, yeah. and you don't say things like, you know, here's the boy from Zimbabwe or here's the girl from Japan. Or yeah. it, it, just, it just is part of their makeup, oh. and I loved that. Oh, you're giving me chills. Like that, that is um, so touched that you've kind of highlighted that, Corey, and you've noticed that, I, I found that incredible. And I found that um, it was in, amazing what a city would provide you. If, you. if you're willing to be the douchebag who sits on that corner for days on end, out on that corner, just exposed, like completely exposed, anything can happen for eight hours when you sit on a corner of any major city. You imagine walking down Melbourne, you know. How did you get the idea for it? Like, why not, um, I mean, why the street corner, why that particular intersection? It's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a basking thing. Like, it's a classic thing. You sit where you're going to get the most money. I wasn't after money. I was just after stories. So just go where all the people are. Go to the people. And, um, and the beautiful thing about human nature is that I think people were embarrassed for me because it was really embarrassing. I had my sign... 
It said, sentimental writer collecting love stories. Do you have one to share? And I think they thought I was kind of a little bit crazy or a bit sort of like, is this guy okay? And then some would come past and go, hang on, what? That guy wrote that book, Boy Swallows Universe. And the play, there was the, the play, Boy Swallows Universe play was, was, was on when I was doing that book. Like it was, it was all happening. People were buying their tickets and, and it was so beautiful that the city rewards you. You know what I mean? The universe rewards. Rewards us all when we do something risky or whatever. It's like, you, you know, whatever, you know, you would have done it a million times. Uh, is that a good idea? Uh, starting a podcast, whatever, ever, ever, you know, you do it and the bloody world, you know, responds and says, hey, thanks for doing it. And and I really love that. And um, yeah, but what, what prompted, and I knew it was worth doing because I swear it came from such a cool place. Like, this is the thing. Like, my best friend's mum died on Christmas Day 2020. Her name was Kath Kelly, and she died at 89, and her best friend, her best friend was a 1960s Olivetti typewriter, and she wrote letters on that thing. She wrote letters to church heads. She wrote letters to school heads, all about women's rights and sort of human rights and just fairness and everything that matters in this world. And she was, an, you know what she wrote? Um, she wrote? She wrote things to me, you know, when my dad died. She wrote things like, Trent, he's not dead when you speak his name, and, and just incredibly thoughtful, loving woman. My wife, my eldest daughter, Beth, and I, we, we go to her funeral. We're sitting in the funeral. And then, and yeah, and then the most beautiful thing happens. I'm, I'm, we're at the back in the parking lot of this Albany Creek Memorial um, Park, blazing hot January, Brisbane day. And I'm with Kel, Kath's son. And, and I'm telling him how much, I, you know, Kath meant to me. We're having these Forex Gold beers that Kath instructed us to have that were in her fridge before she got, you know, um, taken to hospital. We're having a beer, toasting Kath, and, and then I say, man, she was so beautiful. She, she did a lot of things to help my writing. Like, she really did. She was almost like, I like that one, Trent, and always with my journalism. She loved all the journalism stuff. She loved, she would have She would have loved love stories, Corey. But anyway, and so, and then Kel, he just goes, he, he's like, oh, wait till you see this. And he leans in the back of his Subaru, opens up the back door, leans in, pulls out Kat's Olivetti, and, and he hands it to me. He says, she wanted you to have it. And I'm like freaking weeping. My wife was there. It was like this sort of, it was like this, he gathered everyone around and he like presented, it was like this sort of, you know, it was like this sort of ritual moment. It was so beautiful. And, and we all, rem- you know, I was just hugging everyone. I was very moved. And, and, and then, you know, about two weeks later, I was just like, I want to do something beautiful with this and, and, and I wanted to get back out into journalism and into talking to strangers. So it's absolutely an extension where the idea comes from is just I did a story just before COVID came called Sunny Avenue in the Weekend Australian magazine where I knocked on the doors, of, just endlessly knocked on the doors of this one street in Brisbane, which was a real mix um, on this street. You had Housing Commission to Australia and all her differences. You know, you had just a great mix of people on that street. Anyway, I just endlessly knocked on doors on that street, asking people if they'd tell me their entire life story and then put that in a six-part series where you interwove all of their stories and see how the matrix of all their lives is connected on this one street. And, and I was like, that felt really good doing that. It felt really good. It was just pure, you know, I, I would love to talk to the stranger five doors down way more than I want to talk to Brad Pitt. Actually, I mean, I'd love to talk to Brad Pitt, but like that's probably a bad example. But some other, some sort of super celebrity, I would really prefer to talk to the strangers on the corner of Adelaide and Albert than, than anyone. Anyway, so like I thought, let's just do that and let's do something beautiful. So so Kat's funeral was in the January. When did you head to the streets? 
I probably started around March, April. Yeah, and 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 it wasn't even it wasn't even all all days on the corner. There was still two months of just even just okay. When I wasn't on the corner, I'm walking around that you know, give it a block. There's there's a pub called the Orient Hotel, you know, and uh, and I'd just walk around and just tap people gently on the shoulder. If there was a guy holding a baby or something, I was like. Hey mate, can you just please tell me what you're feeling right now holding that baby? So that that was really wonderful too, and yeah, and it was probably this three monthish sort of period from like March, April, May. In between, mind you, you know, we had all these little lockdowns here in Brisbane, so it was sort of tricky stuff. It's a minor miracle that it all happened. That I found certain windows where you could genuinely sit still. You're listening to the Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Trent, your first thought, of course, as the reader is, is, you know, romantic love. And I would love you to read a little passage from one of those romantic stories in a minute. Again, one of the the great qualities of this book is it reminds us that love comes in many different shapes and sizes. It can actually be love of a thing. There are so many stories, uh, so many of them are sad because loved ones have died. Or in the case of the Zimbabwean vet student Joseph, Joseph Mafuo, who separated from his mother when he was a young teenager because he wanted to come to – or she wanted him to go to Australia and have a better life. And there is that old line about love being eternal, and I guess that's what you've discovered on this journey. Love is the most wondrous equal opportunity thing and and it is – you you recognise it so – so clearly when it's gone and we're so bad at sometimes at recognizing it when we've got it i spoke to so many people aged about 65 who look back at their 35 year old selves and kick themselves for not recognizing what they had that was so beautiful and tender to hear those recurring stories and what about helen with the cigarettes just, the man she eventually falls in just, love with and marries he couldn't go he didn't want to ask her out because she was smoking cigarettes <laughs> Helen is the most amazing woman who calls me, like, you know, often. Like, we talk every fortnight or so, and she's just, like, she's, she's she made me believe in the book. She, she made me rea- realise, she's very early on in the book, and she made me realise the thing could work. With the, the romance in the way she clenched, clenched her fists, and she's like, oh, I have spent two years smoking cigarettes instead of kissing that boy. Now that he's gone, you know what I mean? She'd, she'd, she'd give anything to get those two years back. Mm. And, but it was so beautiful. Um, you know what really struck me sometimes, Corey, were the people who would come up and say, um, I really want to sit and talk to you about my late husband because my I get a sense every time I talk about him, my family don't want me to talk about him anymore or, or they find it really hard for me to talk about the love I have for him. And so many people who had lost someone had would, would talk about it in the most romantic way that, and I realise love is still freaking love if the person's not there. You can continue a love story. The love story goes on by your sheer existence, you know, and I thought that was that was such a recurring theme. But the the, the, the sort of downside of love is so through that, that book and how it can kind of ruin us, you know, and, and it's such a powerful thing. Like, man, I'm, my old man, you know, my dad was, you know, I look back and I go, yeah, well, my dad was ruined by love. He messed up with my mum, you know. Like the love of his life, he screwed it up. And it was so romantic in many ways, the way he would get on the turps and just kind of drunkenly moan to the television screen at 2 a.m. And I knew, man, I knew even at 11 that, like, he's just freaking moaning the, the fact that he messed up with this beautiful mum of mine, you know? And so it's like, that's love, you know, that's a love story that oh. sort of ends kind of sad, but it's still beautiful and 
my mum still loves him. You know, she, she just, just still loves him, you know, big time. But it's like he's not around and they never sort of got back together or whatever, but that's still a beautiful romance, you know, in many ways, you know what I mean? And, I tell you what, if, if your wife Fiona is reading Devotion, um, she, her headspace, she'll just be going between the two books because they completely talk to one another, one fiction, one non-fiction. Can you, um, can you tell us about, can you read a little bit from The Lovebirds? Yeah. I love I love the lovebirds because this is romantic love and everybody around seemed to always notice that this older couple were always holding hands and touching and being romantic. <laughs> yeah, they walk into this um yeah yeah booper sort of health thing and this 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 woman like oh you're the lovebirds I see you every day from out my window and you you know they just hug each other they, they would express so much love and so so she's like we call you two the lovebirds. So this is this is Laney talking about how many times they say I love you to each other. So they're a couple like in their seventies or so, and they're just the most beautiful couple who go walking through Brisbane City, and they they're a recurring couple in the book. The way Laney figures it, they share an I love you moment at least once a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes six times a day. Uh, can I just do the math on that for a second? I ask. Let's say they've said it just once a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year for the past fifty-seven years. That's at least 20,805 times they've said, I love you. Now let's let anything be possible for lovers and let us compile all those I love you moments between Ian and Lainey Gibson and let us cut and edit them into a single unbroken reel of film, the most romantic movie ever projected onto the silver screen of somewhere quaint and cosy, somewhere warm like the Elizabeth Picture Theatre, just a five-minute walk from this corner. Now grab yourself a large tub of popcorn and one of those McPherson Robertson's Cherry Ripe Chocolate Bars, the old ones, like the ones Peter and Joanna to get your chair in the little wheel at Picture Theatre and let all those collected I Love You moments spill across the cinema screen. Ian and Lainey Gibson on small 1960s couches in small 1960s houses, I love you. On disco-era dance floors, I love you. In 1970s maternity wards, I love you. 1980s Italian restaurants, I love you. Beneath Christmas trees, I love you. By rivers across Europe, I love you. By suburban creeks and camping tents and in supermarkets and surgery waiting rooms and school classrooms and grandparents' day, I love you. And I still know when I've come home. Oh, not a dry yeah, eye in the house. Everybody's bawling <laughs> now. Isn't that beautiful? I love that little bit. That's Lady just to go. I just, that line yeah. of Lady's like... He reminds me of one. No, he 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 represents home. Like like he, I, I'm I'm home. I'm yeah. home when I'm with this guy. And I was like, oh, so 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 true. It. And you know, it's such a skill of yours as the interviewer to get the people to talk like that. And you were mentioning before these kind of impromptu moments that you have where you approach people and say, "Can I just ask you something?" It reminds me of the the two young girls or young women in Starbucks, in the Starbucks cafe, and you notice them um, and they're, they're sitting on one of the tables and they're having their coffee or whatever they're having, but their, their foreheads are touching one another and they're having this sort of intimate, quiet moment and you go up and say, um, excuse me, your word's not mine, Interrupt, like an interrupting douchebag stranger with a notepad in his hand and you say, this is going to sound totally ridiculous, but are you able to describe to me what just happened between you two when you rested your foreheads together just like that. I thought, yes, they probably did think you were a creep, but they laughed. They thought it was great. You had seen the way that the love that they were sharing, forehead to forehead, it was beautiful. And it was, and, but what was so unexpected is that a human being would stop and go, what just happened? What's just going on right now? Tell me. And that stems from, um, I wanted to, 
I love that notion. So I, I once did a piece and I, and I wasn't able to take it to the levels that I wanted to take it. I did a feature piece in the Weekend Oz Mag where I wanted to document a, a family like mum, dad, three kids, suburban family, the way um, David Attenborough might document, you know, um, some creatures in the jungle. So, so what if you had landed from Mars and you'd never, ever seen an Australian suburban family before? And so it entailed me spending like a lot of time in this family's house and I would just sit in the corner of, and it was really fun. And, and I remember um, like I'd just sit in the corner and go, yeah, you guys go about your business. I'm just going to document like, everything that you're doing. And it was really cool. It was like the story of a family. But I remember um, wanting to go like, and then it got to like sort of 10 at night and I was like, yeah, can I follow you guys into the bedroom and just go about your bed? And then the guy's going like, get out of my house now and i remember just thinking yeah okay okay that you can't take this too far but that that notion of trying to document human interaction you know and being aware of it and stuff no matter what you do you know you know that even asking that is going to be a funny bit in the story so you're directing the story in, in many ways no matter what she said and she just happened to say the most beautiful thing which is i was thinking how this girl uh in front of me makes me feel like a warm bowl like, a, she's just a warm bowl of love, you know, and I was like, well, that's pretty beautiful. Thank you for telling me. That's right. And off I go, you know. One, one of my favourite lines in the in the book, Trent, is actually the letter that your wife Fiona writes. So she's she's in the background, although quite a, quite a big figure in this book, actually, because you get the feeling that she's your sounding board, not just with this project, but life generally. Oh, so insightful. And so... You, you go off and spend the day talking to people about their love affairs. You come home, you're kind of unpacking them. She's loving the stories in the kitchen as you're making dinner. That's all great. And you ask her to do something and she's a bit reticent to talk about what love means to her, but then she writes a letter to you. And this is toward the back of the book. And this, this phrase resonates more than you can imagine. When the world throws unimaginable grief and tragedy at you, throw yourself into loving so that's my com- that's my compel- that's my compelling take home of this whole book. I, seriously, I I think that is just it's such a good motto for all of us to run our lives by because we all lose people we love. Some people are scared of falling in love again because they might have lost a husband or a child or you know they're terrified of of getting their heart ripped again. But if you can if you can actually turn that into some sort of positive where I'm okay I'm going to love more I'm going to love everything more and that's a sort of observation of love and you and your relationship I loved that Corey I mean don't even I'm so touched that you you highlight that it's the it's the best part of the book it's the most compelling ending to the book and I want to tell you I won't go into it deeply but but Fee had written that from a place of great personal loss you know, like she, at the time, you know, when she was writing that. Just, I felt that. It was, yeah, did you? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and it was just, I, I, I read that on the lounge. Like she just typed it. <laughs> it, makes, it gets me teary just thinking. I, I freaking read it four times in a row over four days, like four different days, and I wept every time because she was hitting marks like that. It was so profound. <laughs> and, and it was just this beautiful moment where I'm this idiot going off into this thing. I'm, I, I go for months, right? It, she saw me every day. I'm off. See you, honey. I'll, I'll come back and I'd come back with all these stories. You know, I didn't even have to go anywhere. You know, 
Uh, I could have just asked my wife in the kitchen. And that is the beautiful end of that story that I love so much. Yeah, but, uh, but I, I wonder about that, Trent. I'm not saying that she's not an incredibly insightful and articulate woman. <laughs> yeah. She is. Yeah. But I think, I think what your book does is really make us think about love in all of its different phases and its different characters and then the conclusions that we can draw from that big picture. And so I suspect that Fiona probably had to go through all of that with you to, to get to that landing point. But it's so utterly profound. Trent Dalton and myself are talking about how wonderful it is to, to be in love and talk about love. But now I'm going to ask you a slightly frivolous question, although always interesting answers come from our writers. If you were stranded on the desert island, I wonder whether you would choose a love story. What, what book or books or author would you take or want to have with you in your suitcase? Oh, it's such a great question. I love these type of questions. Can I, I mean, is it lame to choose the complete works of Shakespeare? Is that sort of, <laughs> that's okay. No, I mean, that, it, you'd certainly be occupied until the rescue boat arrived. Yeah, exactly. You see, that would that would really keep me occupied. Then I'd go this, I've got this Macquarie dictionary that's actually Fiona's, but it sort of sits by the desk because that would let me just indulge in words. Um, Shakespeare would let me indulge in themes and then that would inspire a hundred other stories. Um, but I've got to go, I would go The Grapes of Wrath because it's the, it's the most defining book in my life and, and I'd just keep reading the last second last page over and over because I'd be missing humans and there is no page of literature that talks about the wonders of humanity than the second and last page of The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do then when I can't even remember them, but I'm going to find my copy and I'm going to yeah. read those last two pages. How it's interesting. A of, it's a moment of pure human grace and and, um, and it just, it was really groundbreaking to me at about, to hit that at about 21 when I was sort of like, I don't know, you know what I mean, processing all that stuff in my own life and going, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's, that's being human. Yeah, okay, I've got it. I'm all sorted, yeah. Well, speaking of moments of human grace and wonder and beauty, love stories, as I hold it up to the camera and no one but you can see, is just my absolutely, it, it, is, it is the kind of book I wish I'd written. Congratulations on such a great idea. Corey, you're the best. I have loved this conversation so much. Oh. You said one thing at the start, though, I don't know if we've got time, but you said you would tell me a love story if you did pass me. Like, can I ask what story you might like briefly, you don't have to, you know, I don't know. Like, what would you say about love or, or someone you love? Well, I, well, story that your favorite love story, what might have you said if, well, they, I, if well, the amazing Corey Perkin walked uh, past? And first of all, thank you, not amazing, Trent. I think it's, I think Fiona, I think the reason Fiona's has resonated with me probably is, is the ongoing love affair that I've had with my father who died when I was 14. So he was 45. He was editor of the Asian newspaper and he had a sudden heart attack on the bed. And so it was all over in about 15 minutes. And the, I watch my children now. I have four grandchildren and I watch the three little girls and Max. The three little girls are so loved and adored and treasured by their dads and their esteem is built up. It builds their esteem. And my father, never a day went by when he didn't, all the time, just used to say, Mopsy, you're gorgeous or you're clever or you write lovely stories or whatever, whatever, whatever. And then when that went, nobody has ever been able to um, fill my sense of self-esteem. So the love affair is incomplete 
and and it's the thing that's defined my life. And I love him and I miss him every single hour of the day. It's a beautiful story. Why are you making me cry now? Come on, this is your interview. Oh, beautiful. I mean, thank you for just making my day and I'm going to freaking hug my daughters to death. Um, exactly. Talking about people when they've gone, it keeps them alive and, you know, the more we talk, the more they stay alive with us. I feel when I talk to you, though, Corey, that I, you know, maybe squeezed enough in between 0 and 14 of your life. Like, do you feel like he squeezed enough? You know, did he get enough just for you to get through? Get through, or you know? Well, I've just, I, I think the the fact that I've had such great three great kids and had such yeah. great relationships with them, I've made every minute matter, and oh, I've and I've made the, choices yeah. choices sometimes difficult choices, but I've done it for them and for us to save us as a little family unit. So definitely, definitely, you know, there's a lasting legacy. Trent, look, you know, I can't wait to see what happens next. I'm so happy to hear that you're on the writing train and the confidence yeah. is there and two, yeah. two books a year. Great to meet you. Great to have you on the book pod and what thank you. Thanks, Corey. All the best. Lovely thank to see you. you. Thank you. Thanks again. See you later. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.